All of these projects, Eater, Kitchen Surfing, all have that in common, which is to say they are attempts to make something out of food as pop culture. What, what does that mean? It means that it's, 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 it's beyond this sort of niche interest of, you know, a very limited part of the population, and now chefs and food and restaurants are mainstream entertainment. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today, Matt's talking to Ben Leventhal, one of the founders of a website many of us like to read called Eater. He's also the founder of Resi. If you've made a restaurant reservation anytime in the last few years, you've probably encountered it. Later on this episode, we'll be giving Max Felkowitz an exciting listener question to answer. But Matt, tell me about Ben. Ben Leventhal and I go back. We have good history and we talk about food media in the early days and what it was like to found Eater and also the evolution of the restaurant reservation. Anna, do you use Resi? I do all the time. It really is my go-to. It's a really cool thing. Uh, I use it probably more than the other guy, though I do use the other guy too. But we talk about really the state of restaurants in New York and other cities and how they're struggling to survive and what they can do to survive. I think Ben has a lot of interesting thoughts on that. Yeah, Ben would know. Here's Matt with Ben Leventhal. Hey, Ben Leventhal, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Man, I've wanted to get you in here to talk about a lot of things, but first, let's talk about co-founding Eater. Um, you know, we kind of both worked in the same media world um, 10 years ago, and um, we were both launching things. And I think the media landscape has changed dramatically since then, the food media landscape. I want you to take us back to that era. Reflect on it a bit. Let's marinate. What did you do right with Eater in the early days? And what did you kind of, what do you regret? Um, I think we got timing right for sure. We got timing right. We got pace right. We got uh, voice right. You know, the landscape was, I think, relative to where it is today, fairly homogenous. The topics, the formats were um, pretty much the same across a lot of different outlets, a lot of different format, a lot of different media. Um, and I think we came in with a fresh perspective at the right time. Um, when we started Eater, we didn't really have any competitors. Um, within the first 12 months, several emerged from the New York Times, from New York Magazine, um, some independents. But that's when I look back, I think the thing more than anything else is we just sort of felt the moment and we had an instinct about what the opportunity was. And, um, Turned out we were right. Yeah, you were. And you really captured uh, the news of restaurants really well. I think that the news was not being covered. It was more of promotional, in a sense, PR driven. And you kind of like t tore up all your PR contacts and just went for it, right? <laughs> Scorched earth strategy. Scorched start. earth strategy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think Eater now is has pivoted, um, I mean, several times. We don't even get into that. But how do you think they're doing now? I think they're doing fine. I, I think one lesson that I learned over the years since leaving is – when, um, you know, you build something from scratch and you're emotionally attached to it, when you leave, you have to really leave. You have to really detach <laughs> from it. You have to um, you have to shut it off a little bit. And I think uh, it took me a while to come to that realization. Yeah, yeah. But I think that they're doing fine now. I think that it's obviously a different publication and arguably a slightly different lane. But um, uh, 
you know, there there's lots of high quality content coming out of the publication. Um, you know, I miss the I miss the emotion that we put into it. I miss um, the uh, the looseness of it from back in the day. Um, but arguably, it's a different time, and it calls for something different. Yeah, looseness can be uh, can be great for small scale, and like Twitter maybe has has kind of overtaken the blog because you can be loose on Twitter, but with publications, you pay you have overheads, and you have to actually have a structure. So, <laughs> well, it's funny because when we were doing what we called quick links, yeah, I mean that was just sort of like a native. It was a tweet was more tweeting. than anything else. Sure was, yeah. Um, and so I, I totally agree with you as the broader ecosystem <laughs> of of digital media has yeah. evolved. Um, I think that Amanda has been smart about the ways in which she's involved. She's evolved Eater. Absolutely. Amanda Clue, shout out to that. I want to talk about your career after uh, after Eater. You went on to work at NBC, worked on some sites there. You worked at a website, a launch called Kitchen Surfing. And the big question is, how did those experiences lead up to the launch of Resi, which we'll get into? Um, so, you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit, actually, and um, because you you're you were nice enough to send over some of these questions yeah, ahead of time. Try so. to try to give you a little prep. That. Yeah. Um I think the through line here is the rise of food as pop culture. Um and all of these projects, kitchen surfing, um, eater, kitchen surfing, um, the feast, uh, resi, all have that in common, which is to say they are um attempts to Make something out of food as pop culture. You know, I think what what does that mean? It means that it's 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 beyond this sort of niche interest of you know a very limited part of the population. And now chefs and food and restaurants are mainstream entertainment. And so you know, with kitchen surfing, obviously the idea was let's connect chefs with individuals um, because all of a sudden chefs in you know private chefs in people's homes is not an idea just for the rich and famous. It's for it's an it's a really intriguing idea for everyone. Now, it, it turned out we the execution was off. You know, with the feast, NBC woke up and said, "Wow, we we need to be talking about food every day. Um, we need a branded food site." It was a business decision on their part, um, and I was happy to to have an opportunity to take mm-hmm. a swing. And with Resi, you know, a lot of what we're doing is we're um, we're reconsidering and reformatting the technology for a new generation of diners who are looking for a close connection with restaurants. And I like that you say food is pop culture, but I want to be clear, this isn't pop like pop culture figures talking about food either, because there's I think people mix those up a little bit. There's with Resi and what you've done, there's a high IQ and EQ with the way that you're producing the app and the content around it. Just to be I mean, I think I, I want appreciate to that. Yeah. Talk about the first day the founders got together at a table or at a restaurant probably it was at a restaurant okay you were dining there i wanted my question is what were you talking about at that first meeting with the founders um we were talking about first off where was it sorry to interrupt i don't want to tell you where it was not a customer of resi today which breaks (laughs) my heart but i i but it was it was a very good restaurant (laughs) only resi Um, clients leave your lips only resi customers get mentioned on air yeah um the conversation was, I think there was kind of three intersecting ideas. One is pure presence of opportunity. Um, and the second was presence of opportunity, meaning this technology is fundamentally old. There is no innovation. Like when I view, when I look at the world, when I see a category where there hasn't been innovation in a decade, to me, that's a screaming opportunity. Um 
So that was one real theme, was just which is just like we're we're in an industry, we're looking at an industry, we have domain expertise in an industry where there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. The second thing we were talking about was what we perceived, and it, and it stems off of this idea of of it is part, it is the essence of the opportunities. There's a disconnect between restaurants and customers in, in a digital universe, in a mobile first digital universe. There's not really good ways. The, the conversation was there's not really good ways of connecting people in restaurants in real time. Instagram starting to become, you know, a mega presence. Um, obviously, the, the time of launch, the time of launch. Yeah, like, yeah. But but even in that context, um, you know, restaurants aren't connecting with customers on iMessage. The whole world is people messaging each other all day long. We're shifting from a phone first universe to a messaging first universe. And restaurants really didn't have the the resources or the know-how or the technology. And they weren't partners. collecting data either, right? They weren't. They no, weren't not really. There's, you know, some, there's some, there, there was, there remain, there were, there were some companies that are doing sort of data collection and data presentation on behalf of restaurants, but they're, they were older players and they weren't doing it in, in a good, in a sophisticated way. Um, Certainly, it wasn't something that all restaurants were talking about. Um, so that was kind of the other thing we were talking about: is it, there's this disconnect here, and we can we can f- put something in between customers and restaurants, and do so in a way um, that drives tech, that, that drives technology and drives hospitality. And that, that was kind of the conversation. Um, who who is your first target? Like, who did you really want to to sign up? Like during that first meeting, you must have had a wish list. You must have had a few. I think. You know, fortunately, got some of them. I know you did. Oh, oh, I use it, of course. Of course, you did. <laughs> the restaurants. I mean, the thing about Resi that's the moments of Resi that are really still very gratifying to yeah. me is when a restaurant that I love and respect signs up for our platform yeah. because it's because these are restaurants where you know they take tremendous pride and care in the product they're putting out, and when they say we'll use Resi, to me, that's they're them saying. We are going to trust you with that brand, um, so it still gives me it still gives me a rush when they sign up. But uh, but to your to answer your question, Minetta Tavern, Charlie Bird, mm-hmm. um, New York City establishments at this point, really, yeah, really those Balthazar, very obviously. very hard tables for some time. You no, know, just the kind yeah. of the best tables, which yeah. are often the hardest tables. Yeah. Like those were the restaurants where that I was excited about. Um, in 2014, and obviously I remain five years. You know, amazing restaurants. But those were when you ask, like, what were the ones that came to mind? Yeah. Those were definitely a couple. Those are great. Momofuku as well. Took it took Dave a lot, quite a lot longer to come around, but um, but that was another brand. Well, he, I, I, it was one of the earliest conversations I had was was with Dave. Yeah. Um, and, and I shared the idea with him. So well, he had his proprietary platform, which was quite famous for, especially for booking at Co and booking. Yep. Uh, and it was famously down a lot too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we won't get into that. Yeah. Uh, for your stats, these are remarkable. You work with forty five hundred restaurants, and you see two point six million diners each week. Um, incredible scale, uh, a lot of data coming in. Not an easy question to answer in a few minutes, but what what are you seeing in the industry? Like, what what are you seeing? What's working with with and what's not working? I think what's interesting about what's going on today is I see what's working as concepts that are, and this is maybe not specific to today, and maybe this is just sort of a kind of general global rule, but something that we're seeing is concepts that really, really scream authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that 
I think that Jordana Rothman did an incredible job with the best new chef list this year. And one of the things that I, that I sort of took away from her curation there was that we are really, what really matters to people today is who are the people that are cooking the food, that are seating you, that are welcoming you into the restaurant. We want to know who they, who they are, what their stories are, how they came to this moment where, um, they're running a restaurant. And to me, that's a, that's, that means that we care about the authenticity and the, and the stories behind the restaurants more than we have. And so the places that, you know, really popping, I mean, Hasselon in New York is this kind of crazy half, half, you know, amazing food experience, half dinner party. Um, it's just this, um, this totally um, emotional, honest, incredibly talented chef doing his thing. Um, King, which is not a brand new restaurant, but you hear more and more about it. And it's really, I think, a tremendously um, authentic effort. You use the word authentic. I also uh, take this as having a really clear point of view. I think that that's also something a lot of food writers kind of miss is that like you're like, it's like about a point of view. It can be good or it can be bad, but at least they have it. I think that's 100% right. And it's, I think it's a great point. I think when you think, when you look at what, Chang has done with that Korean like Seven Eleven, or yeah. I don't even know know how you yeah. describe it in in um, Hudson Yards. Like that's that's to your point. That's just a point of view, and they're like, "Wow, this guy's coming from someplace." Like Definitely. there's a there's a there's a mo- there's something there, you know. Like I get it. I think Coneby in L.A. is another oh, sure. place where friend it's just- of the podcast, Kira Kudo. Amazing guy. Like that place comes at the world with a point of view. He's saying like there's like basically two things that are important here, guys, croissants and sandwiches. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no (laughs) doubt. And that's awesome. Like that's that's exciting to me when when somebody comes at the world and presents, opens their doors and says, Mm -hmm. I care about there's 10 seats here. I care about these. These are limited number of things. And I think they matter the most. And that's where I'm coming from. I think we're in a world where there's like that's what people are responding to and and those kinds of ideas are popping way more than anything else. Absolutely. And like just look at the salad bar wars like Fresh and Co versus Sweet Green. I mean, no one wants to eat at a Fresh and Co. Come on. Nobody cares no about it. No one cares about that yeah. brand. I want I've asked this question to Pete Wells, Robert Sitsuma, <laughs> Bill Addison, Hannah Goldfield. This is a pretty big question. Um what should the next New York City mayor do? to help small restaurant owners survive in this, like, what is a, it is an apocalyptic real estate environment right now. That's the way I've kind of phrased it. Well, um, obviously we've got to, we've got to, you know, get some landlords to come down on price and not play and not hold spaces vacant for a long time. I think, um, you know, there's definitely, and, and it's not a, it's it's not an idea without controversy. The idea of a vacancy tax could work in some form or another. Um, I think, I think a mayor with some empathy for the industry generally would go a long way. You know, it's not just occupancy. I mean, the issues that race, restaurants are facing, I think, are of, you know, first of all, there's just an education problem. We just restaurateurs. It's expensive for restaurateurs to figure out what the hell to do with employment regulation, with with all kinds of different things that are that are now um, 
mandated in terms of doing business. And as you figure those out and you make mistakes, the cost of those mistakes is high. So I think a a mayor who commits to education and engagement with the industry and understands where restaurateurs are coming from matters a lot. Um, But honestly, my answer here is that I don't think this is a an issue of government. I think this is interesting. I think that city, I think that restaurant, good restaurateurs today are running profitable businesses. I think restaurateurs that are less um, oriented with P&Ls, less um, adept at modeling are having more of a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't open a restaurant today and format it and fashion it the way you could, you would have done 10 years ago and expect it to work. You can't do it. Um, Doesn't that come down to the, the lease you sign though? But I would argue, you know, I'm a, I'm a capitalism guy. Like yeah. I think if, you know, if, 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 if landlords own, if landlords own property and they want to charge X for them, then either somebody's going to pay or nobody's going to pay. And over time we'll, we'll revert to, you know, the supply and demand, the, the clearing price of the land of the of the of the lease in the short term is it frustrating yeah it's frustrating yeah. well but, 10 years if you look at mystery there's some spaces that have been empty for 10 years you know? same with bleaker yeah i mean bleaker now is Ugh. but but here's what's happening on bleaker right yeah. now brookfield has come along and said this is an opportunity for us we're going to take some of these leases we're going to give them out at very low price to things that serve the neighborhood Right. And so now Bleecker Street is kind of, I I think, going to start to have a new cultural moment. But, you know, I'm okay with those cycles. Like I'm okay with 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 there being some amount of up and down and 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 waxing and waning in the the industry. Um, Look, the smart guys, the smart guys are are leveraging what we what we talked about at the start which is food is pop culture the smart guys are not building out their own spaces they're not taking market leases they're going to developers and saying my restaurant is going to be an amenity for your neighborhood or an amenity for your business so pay me the deal so pay me to open it yeah yeah right pay me to open it (laughs) and and that is real that's what's happening now if you look at a place like king or like mimi right um, obviously those guys paid to open their own restaurants. They found investors, they built the restaurant, they opened restaurants. They just happened to do it at a scale where they can make it work. You know, if you're going to open, if you want to open a big restaurant in Soho and you're going to build the space yourself and you're going to spend $4 million mm-hmm. to get a 90 seat restaurant open, uh, it's not, your chances aren't that you better good. Hope the product <laughs> is dope. You really better hope the product is dope because it's not going to work. Yeah. You got to do something different is what I'm saying. Like you got to, you got to have delivery. You got to have takeout. Yeah. You got to mm-hmm. do, you got to use your brand for other products. I, I, I think smart restaurateurs are making it work. Yeah. And I think that the, it's a little bit, and I, this is look, the numbers speak for themselves. Like there's vacancy is high. Rents are high. Nobody's taking these leases. Clearly, there's a problem, but I think it's less it's less of less one about um, legislation and and government intervention and more about economics and cycles. And I think the good news is if you look at the landscape today, if the good news is things are pretty bad right now. They're going to get we're, we're There's going to their bright days coming pretty soon. Mm hmm. You you talk about in, in presentations about Resi about educating your your partners on and your platform partners and 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 working with them beyond putting butts in the seat. I mean, you talk about education. Is this something that you would play a role in as a as a as a founder of Resi to help 
startups? We try York? to. We really do. I, I mean, I think we're probably just scratching the surface of what we can do, but um, we try to give restaurateurs our view on what metrics matter the most. Great. You know? I mean, that's great. You know, if your restaurant is, if your covers are going, are doubling week over week, you're a brand new restaurant, your covers are doubling every week for 12 weeks. Um, that's a top line indication that you're doing great. But if your repeat business is having every week, you're done. It's over. Mm-hmm. Your restaurant's going to close yeah. your, by the end of the first year. It means you're not making anyone happy. It means you got the flow fab column, but maybe it means your food's you got, not good. It means you got the flow fab column and you got the right PR team, yeah, but your yeah. food sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not looking at that number, yeah. you're not going to realize that. So we try and do things like that. We try and help restaurants see around corners in that way. Um, we try and aggregate market data and share that with our restaurants. When a restaurant, when one of our partners says, hey, um, what's the market for Bleecker Street right now? You know, um, we don't share that data publicly, but we have that data and we share it with our restaurants That's to nice. make sure um, that they have as full a view as they can get. Um, because they have to succeed for you to succeed. Precisely. Pretty simple. Uh, a couple quick ones to finish. I wanted to hear which restaurant critics do you not like? Well, you know, you never really spared opinions, and I just had to go with the negative one. Who don't uh, you like? Unfortunately, Matt, as my in my current role, <laughs> I'm not. If there's no upside for me to okay. to be negative about any of them. Didn't but, take but the bait. Okay. I, I, but what I would say is I like critics who are consistent. Yeah. They're coming from a position and we know what where they're coming from, okay. uh, from a place. So um, I think that um, – Who do you like? Okay, we'll go to the positive and I appreciate you being honest about your position. Well, now. I think in a really great way – I like the OG guys. I mean, I think like Pete Wells and 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 Adam Platt. Like you know where they're coming from. Like you know, like I could walk into a restaurant and I could say like, oh, Platty's gonna hate this place, or mm-hmm. he's gonna see it. And and more often than not, you know, you kind of you're right about that because you know where they're coming from. That's the key for critics is you gotta everyone's got to know where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, it feels like almost like it's, it's temperamental. It's like it's like your mood that just day. feels random. Yeah, random. And story. and critics are are not. Yeah. That role is not to feel random. Yeah. Resi's in many cities. And I wanted to close with a question. Uh, what city are you just really excited about? Ben, I know you're going to give me an answer that is not Los Angeles. Because that is what every <laughs> fucker says. But you're, you're better than that, Ben. But Los Angeles is good these it's days. Great. I'll give you another answer. The answer is Houston. Love that. Please marinate on that. Love that. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Um but I do love L.A. I think L.A. has found its lane, blah, blah, blah. You don't want me to talk about L.A. I get it. Yeah. I think Houston's a great city. It's up and coming. There's a lot of energy, a uh, lot of good, cheap real estate opportunities. Yeah. Like you can open a restaurant in Houston and not risk, you know, losing everything. There's a vibrancy to the neighborhoods. The Heights is really interesting. Um Obviously, tons of amazing, more obscure uh, ethnic cuisines there that that aren't uh, that aren't kind of getting their due uh, at a broad, a high level around the country. At a, you know, um, so Houston. Yeah, Houston's great. Also, uh, also El Tiempo. Oh yeah. I mean, if some people think I'm. Some people think the idea of El. You know, El Tiempo. No, no, no. What is- El Tiempo is a Tex-Mex place. Yeah. There's a couple of restaurants in New York that are that are lightly fashioned after it, but it just it does amazing, crazy, crazy numbers, thousands and thousands wow. of covers across a couple of locations, and it's just like it's what Tex-Mex is supposed to be. And you just like look at this operation, and you're like, holy hell, this is this is like 
where does this come from? It's like, and there's a great story behind it. It's a family business and all that stuff. But, um, but there's tons going on. I know Nimfa's on navigation. I've been there a few times. Nimfa's and I love Alabama Ice House and the taco trucks there. I mean, the Vietnamese, the pho is the best in the country by far. Amazing stuff. Chris Shepard is doing great yes, stuff. Yes, Chris. Peter Rex. Like there's, yes. there's, there's awesome restaurants yep. that have, a, that like we, like we said, are coming from someplace, mm-hmm. have a take, have a perspective. Um, and I think that's what counts. BL, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Here's Max Felkowitz tackling a listener question. Max, I have a reader question for you. Is it true that some vegans do not eat figs? And if so, why? So... This has been a pretty hotly contested discussion on the internet of late, but the truth is that, yes, some vegans don't consider figs to be vegan, and the answer why is really gross and really cool. So Tell me. Lay it on me. So figs, botanically, are flowers, and they're flowers that don't bloom outwards, but they kind of bloom inside themselves like these little delicate introverted like buds. And... Each species of fig, of which there's around 8,000, can only be pollinated by a single species of wasp that only pollinates that particular species of fig. And the wasp pollinates the fig by climbing inside it to lay her eggs and then dying in the center of the fig. And in the process of climbing into this tiny little hole where all the flower petals meet at the bottom of the fig, her antennae get ripped off, her wings get ripped off, and she basically mutilates herself to climb inside this little hole and lay her eggs. And then the eggs have this big, nutritious source of sugar and f- sugar and starches to, uh, to feed on when, once the babies are born. The wasp is then enzymatically digested by the fig as food for the plant. And by the time the baby the baby wasps emerge and by the time the fig is ripe, the wasp is basically gone. But it's technically part of the fig. So some people consider that under really strict definitions of veganism that it contains an animal product and is thus and, and thus isn't okay to eat. No. So it's not even just that some figs have wasps in them. It's that every fig, in order to become a fig, has little dead wasps inside. So commercial figs that are grown for mass production are usually pollinated through other means now. They don't have to rely on the wasps to pollinate them because the wasps are kind of inconsistent compared to you know someone walking around with a pollinator. But historically, yes. And if you're getting more heirloom varieties of figs, it's entirely likely that they were pollinated by fig wasps. And when you taste that crunchy bit when you bite into a fresh fig you're tasting fig seeds you're not tasting wasp bits that was going to be my next question most of the time wow makes you think (laughs) makes you fear figs forever (laughs) thanks max the taste podcast is hosted by matt rodbard and me anna hiesel The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.